that we have been studying what we believe about church history. And uh, we're going to begin that uh, and, and really conclude that uh, study here together uh, tonight. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, questions that come about the study of uh, church history. Uh, I think it's one of the uh, belittled parts of Christianity that really shouldn't be belittled. Now, how many of you are history people? You love history. You are a lover of history. How many of you say, I could care less about history? My least favorite class in school, okay? I, everybody has their preferences when it comes to these things. I'm always fascinated by history. I love American history. I love world history. Um, but I especially love church history. And uh, I think that church history is important, as I've said throughout this series, because, uh, you know, the Bible, uh, Philippians 3.17, it gives us an idea of uh, uh, continuing on by the rule or the standard of doctrine that has been set before us. And I think understanding church history is important so that we can carry on the legacy of faith uh, from those who have come before us. Um, I think church history is important, uh, and, and I think the Scripture teaches it is important to, uh, that we understand our history as well so that we can guard ourselves from going into um, heresy, apostasy, or compromise. And we need to know what it is we believe. And battles that uh, are being fought today have been fought in the past. And knowing where our forefathers stood for the truth helps us understand where we need to take our stand here today as well. And that's, that's very important for us to understand that precedent. And I love studying church history most of all because it always reminds me that whether the church was what she should be in any particular age, Jesus Christ has always been faithful and built his church in every age. He promised, I'm going to build my church, and he's done that. And as we have seen, as we've marched through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, we have seen how Christ has been faithful to keep his word to build his church. Now, I want you to open your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 3 with me. Revelation chapter 3. And I think such an important uh, book of the Bible for you to understand. I know Revelation can be really confusing, but if there's any time the church should understand the book of Revelation, it's today. Um, in the midst of the things that we are going through in this current day and time. And so we have been studying through uh, the different churches um, represented, I believe, here through the seven churches that were written to in the book of Revelation. And the first church that we came to was the Ephesus church. And we, we learned the Ephesus church was the apostolic church. This was the first century church, the church that was started under the ministry of the apostles. The next church that was written to uh, was the uh, Smyrna church, and the Smyrna church was the persecuted church. Um, this church um, was uh, the church of AD, from about AD 100 to 300. They uh, experienced a severe persecution under the Roman emperors. Uh, we learned about them. The next church that we learned about was Pergamos. And the Pergamos church was the worldly church. Constantine, the Roman emperor, came to power and united the state with the church, uh, which was the uh, beginnings of what became the universal church under the Roman government, which was the Roman Catholic Church. And at this point, the church began to become worldly. Worldly ideas began to infiltrate the church. And then the next church age, which we call the Dark Ages, uh, was the Thyatira Church. That was the Papal Church, where the Catholic Church held the power over much of the known world during that point in time, and we studied that. Uh, the next church that we came to after that was the Reformation Church, the Sardis Church, 
And some wonderful things began to happen as people began to see the light. The Word of God began to be put in print so people could read it and study it and discover its truth. It was an important time period, the Sardis time period. And then the one we looked at last week was the Philadelphia Uh, the Church of Philadelphia, which was the revival church, the missions church, my favorite church. If we could be any type of church, we ought to desire to be a Philadelphia church, a church of brotherly love, a church that's revived and seeking the Lord and getting the gospel out to the world. But now we get to the last church, and the last church we're going to look at tonight is the Laodicea church, the church of Laodicea. And we're going to discover that this church right here in Laodicea um, is the lukewarm church. And so let's read about it here in Revelation chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve. That thou mayest see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's pray together and ask God to speak to us tonight. Our Father, we come before you again this evening, and we're thankful for the time of praise we've been able to enjoy both in song and in thanksgiving. Uh, We're glad that we have the freedom to assemble in this place, and Lord, we are hungry to hear your truth. And I pray, God, that you would fill this place with your presence, and though the content that we will be uncovering is certainly Um, a lot of teaching. Lord, I believe there's a lot of practical application for each one of our lives if we listen and we learn from the legacies of those who have come before us and learn from what your word is teaching us here. And I pray it would challenge us to be a pure church, to be the church that you've called us to be, and Lord, to repent of any area where we have begun to turn in our hearts in the wrong direction. And I pray that you'd speak to us tonight. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. This was a letter written to a literal local church in a city called Laodicea. Uh, we've been looking at our map the entire time we've been going through this series. And if you uh, look to the map here, we started in Ephesus on the left. We worked to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. And now we've come back down to Laodicea, almost back to where we began. 
Laodicea was uh, the final church on this round. It was about 40 miles from Philadelphia, about 100 miles um, from Ephesus. And so this location was a central location coming from Jerusalem and traveling into Asia Minor here. It would have been uh, a, a, a place that most people would have passed to, passed through along the way. And this city was founded by Antiochus II, uh, around 300 B.C., as history tells us. And uh, he named the city after his wife, uh, Laodice was her name. There's interest with, uh, of interest that he later divorced Laodice. Um, but uh, that all happened, and that's where this city's roots came from. Geographically, Laodicea uh, was located on a, a plateau that was uh, hundreds of feet high in the air. And its unique location... Uh, uh, Pulled, well, its, its location made it necessary because it was so high to uh, have its water brought in. And so there were great aqueducts that were constructed that brought water into Laodicea. And they would pull from uh, the eastern city of uh, Aeropolis. Um, and really, the water that came from there was hot water because Aeropolis was known for its hot springs. Okay, And then it would also pull from a, a city to its west, Colossae, which there's a book of the Bible written to the, church, the Christians in Colossae, um, and, the, and Colossae was known for its uh, very cool streams. And so literally hot water would come from the hot springs of Aeropolis, cool water, cold water would come from the springs of Colossae, and the picture being presented to us here as Jesus speaks to this church, you're neither hot, you're neither cold, you're lukewarm. It was a picture of the, uh, to these Laodiceans. They knew exactly what he's talking about. Because by the time the water came, the hot water came uh, from Aeropolis and the cold water came from Colossae and got to um, uh, uh, Laodicea, hot and cold, it became very warm water. It was lukewarm water. And boy, the Laodiceans knew what it was like to drink lukewarm water. They didn't like lukewarm water. When Jesus said, you're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. They knew exactly what that was like. And just interesting thinking about the geography of this place in history. Economically, uh, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. So wealthy, in fact, that uh, in, in, in AD 60, there was a devastating earthquake that took place to that city. And instead of getting aid from Rome, Rome offered to pay entirely for their rebuilding. But they declined aid from Rome, and they were such a wealthy city that they decided to do it all themselves, and they rebuilt their own city. Um, and so that was the city of Laodicea. Uh, it was notable uh, for its sources of wealth. It had banks. It was the Switzerland of that day, okay? It had some well-known banks. Uh, they had a black wool industry that was uh, no known throughout the whole world, and probably their most... Uh, uh, notorious, uh, the, the biggest thing that they were known for would have been uh, their ancient practices of medicine. Particularly, they had a, 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 an ear balm that they would send out, and they had an eye salve that they were known for all throughout that region of the world uh, for people to give them some healing to their eyes. And so they were an economically prosperous city. Uh, Jesus wrote to them and said, you think that you don't need anything. You're rich, you're taken care of, you have no problems, problem is you become so rich you don't even think you need me. That's what Jesus said to this church. Socially, Laodicea had all the modern advancements of their time. Um, the, uh, the wealthy 
Laodiceans had, had built amphitheaters, and I think we have a picture of one of the uh, Laodicean amphitheaters, just the ruins of a Laodicean amphitheater, and this was not common to all the cities that we've looked at, but Laodicea was such a wealthy city that they had these great stadiums that were built, and no, they didn't play uh, Monday night football in these stadiums, but um, they, had some, uh, they had some sports, and it was a, it was a prosperous city where they could enjoy um, amusement uh, opportunities and, and things like this, unlike other cities that we've studied uh, throughout this series. And so it was a very prosperous city. They were consumed with amusement. They had public bathhouses. They had different things that were just uh, not common in that time period for people to be able to experience. I think we have a picture that's the ruins of one of the bathhouses and uh, the aqueduct pipes where the water would get piped in. And uh, literally, this was a, this was a uh, uh, upper class type of city. Uh, one of the richest cities of the known world of that point in time. But sadly, the Laodicean church, I believe, was by far the worst of all the ones written to. I think that the writer who is really, John wrote these words, but it was Christ that used him to pen these words. I think that Jesus labors to make clear that this church was really in the worst position out of all of the churches. Jesus, in verse number 15, or verse number 14, he introduces himself by some interesting names to this church. He calls himself the Amen. We often say Amen around here. It means it is so, or I agree. It is true. And it speaks of Jesus being the sure one, the unchangeable one. Then he calls himself the faithful and true witness in verse 14. If anybody could witness what was really happening and knew the truth, it was Jesus. He was a faithful and a true witness. If anybody could testify to these Laodiceans what their real condition was, it was Jesus. And then he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now, a sidebar here, um, the cults love this verse because they, t- they like to call Jesus the first creation, the first thing that God created. That's not at all what this is saying. Uh, one, person, one person noted this about it. Uh, when Jesus calls himself the beginning of the creation of God, it literally means he's the one in whom creation had its beginning. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1 1, 1 says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning with God, and all things were created by him, and without him is not anything made that was made. And so we know Jesus is saying, I'm the one that made everything. I know how everything ticks. That's who he introduces himself as when he introduces himself to this church. And literally, Jesus had nothing good to say to this church. I believe it's, it's really the, one of the only churches, if not the only church, of the seven written to that Jesus had nothing to commend them for. They were in a very bad place. And it's seen why this was so in the words of rebuke that Jesus offered to this church. Uh, he rebuked them for their selfishness. The name Laodicea, you know what it means? It means the people's rights. This was a church consumed with themselves. They were a selfish church, and he, comm- he condemns them for it here. He also rebukes them for their lukewarmness. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's speaking about their apathy. They were spiritually asleep like Jonah. We talked about this morning. They were lethargic. They were spiritually. They lost their fervor. They lost their passion. They were spiritually apathetic. 
And he rebukes them also for their spiritual blindness. They thought they had it all together when in reality in their hearts they were falling apart. And Jesus calls, he really hits it, on the, he hits, he hits it right on the head with uh, exposing to them what their problems really, really were. And, and really the most shocking thing about everything Jesus says to them here is that he told this church, I'm on the outside and I'd like to be let back in. You catch that in verse 20? Jesus told this church, they're not lost people, it's a church, a group of believers, I stand at the door and knock. Hey, if you let me in, I'd like to be in that church service with you. (laughs) It's not really talking about a church service here, it's talking about we're the church, we're the body of Christ. They were even, with all their selfishness and sinfulness and the things that were going on, they're literally pushing Christ out of his own church not letting him have influence and power and dominance within his own church. And as we study this church here, before we come back to what Jesus recommended this church does, I want you to think about what I believe uh, this church, uh, the age of church history this church characterizes, which is really from about a little before A.D. 1900 until present day, the Laodicean church period of history. The church of this age has come to be known the lukewarm church because of the words that Jesus presented here in his address to this church and also because in this period of church history, the church has grown apathetic and even apostate. I'm not going to hold back any punches today because we need to understand this is where we're living at today. We are seeing a lot of of what the Bible's talking about here unfolding in our time, and you'll be able to see it as well as I have been able to uncover it as we've studied this time period of history. I told you a moment ago, Laodicea. The name Laodicea, it literally means the people's rights or the people's rule. Um, Some have even translated this phrase in other places, not in Scripture, but in other places as democracy. Of all things, it's a very interesting thing to think about. But it's a church consumed with the people's rights. This is a church that's ruled by the people. It is literally governed by what the people want, majority rule. Now, the error of some of the earlier churches was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which the Nicolaitans wanted to exalt the clergy over the people. This church took it to the opposite extreme. It made the people in charge of everything that the church was supposed to be. You say, well, which one is it supposed to be? Um, The elders or the people? Neither. Jesus is supposed to be in charge of his church. And we're supposed to submit to his authority. And so neither extreme is right. Christ is supposed to be the head of his church. This was the problem, uh, that this is a problem that has defined this age of the church. Jesus is supposed to be the head. Colossians 1.18, God has given him to be the head of the church so that, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is supposed to be, and really he is, regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not, he is the preeminent one. And, and if anybody should acknowledge that Christ is supreme, it should be his church. Sadly, this is the period of history where that has come under uh, direct attack. Now, God warned, and if you want to turn over there with me, you can, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that this was going to happen. You turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. God warned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 here in verse 3 that a time would come when the people, their opinion, their will, 
would have the rule in the church. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. Let's read it out, let's read it out loud together. Verse 3 of chapter 4 here. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Isn't that interesting? Exactly what... Uh, uh, we're talking about here, the Bible says here, and literally it says the time will come, and I believe that time has come. The people want to hear what they want to hear. And that's been a defining attribute of this period of church history. The church of this present age that we're talking about has experienced what I would like to call a slow slide into compromise the hot-cold factor that Jesus alluded to when he uh, was rebuking this church has certainly been a contributor to this. I like what John MacArthur wrote about this. He said, hot people, hot Christians are those who are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. The spiritually cold are those who reject Jesus Christ. It's interesting to see this dynamic. He labels it as believers and unbelievers. And I think that's an important point for us to understand. All right? Um, but here's what, in, in summary, I just want to get this across. This age, here's, here's what's happened in this age. This, this age of church history began with the hot fires of revival still burning. We're talking about a period of history where the modern missions movement began before this period of history. Missionaries sent all over the world. Some of the greatest revivals that we know of that have taken place in this world happened in the period of church history before this, this period came, uh, came to be. In the 16, 17, 1800, some wonderful things happened uh, across the board uh, on the scale of, of church history. And it's coming out of that hot period of revival and missions in the church that this age began to take place hot, fervent Christians for the Lord. But we also saw towards the end of the Philadelphia church period the rise of secular philosophy in the cults. And the cold impact of particularly secular philosophy began to invade the church and the hot dynamic and the, whole di the cold dynamic as both of these influences begin to impact the church have resulted in a very apathetic and a very cold, uh, not cold, but a very lukewarm church. And in a very real sense, if you look at what has taken place in history, uh, the pages of Scripture are coming to life for us here. Now, the truth is, this, this church age started off, and I've already mentioned this, on, still on fire from the great revivals that had taken place in the centuries before, in the 1700s and the 1800s, and even going on now into the early 1900s, there are some great movings of God that had taken place during this time period of history. Uh, there were many pastors and evangelists whom God used to keep the flame of revival burning in the church during the early part of this period of church history. Uh, there were evangelists like R.A. Torrey, um, evangelists like uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, and, and, and many others, uh, perhaps one that you've heard of before, uh, Billy Sunday. How many heard of Billy Sunday before? Well, I, lo I, love, I love Billy Sunday, all right? Billy Sunday was crazy. He was. I mean, especially for the church of his time. We got, we got pictures of Billy Sunday. Uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a replication of him preaching. 
He's the type of guy that would, that would step up on the pulpit and start preaching, all right? Now, I think you guys would have a conniption if I stepped on the pulpit and started preaching, all right? But he was just, he was just a fiery preacher, and uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, God, I, I don't have time to talk about all of these evangelists, but he's, he's one that I, uh, I, I find to be very interesting. He preached very hard, um, of course, on salvation, and one of, the, one of the things that society knew him for the best was his, they called it his booze sermon. He'd go into, in some of his revival campaigns, he would preach a hard message against alcohol and how it destroys people's lives and uh, tears people apart. And uh, the 18th Amendment of the United States of America, you know what it is? Prohibition, which was done away with later, okay? But literally, a lot of people attribute the Prohibition Amendment that took place in, I think it was uh, 1920, um, they attribute it to the preaching of Billy Sunday. Uh, obviously, there were uh, some good politicians that were involved with that as well. But I'm just talking about the early part of this period of history. There were still some people who were carrying on the torch of revival and, and passionately preaching, and people were responding in the thousands to, the, to, to their ministries. Also during this time period, there were some great pastor teachers who began to come on the scene and began to write, uh, uh, write down uh, uh, in, into commentaries truth that is still helpful to us today. Uh, people like H.A. Ironside, um, uh, Louis Sperry Schaefer, William Newell, who's one of my my favorites, uh, George Truett, uh, W.A. Criswell, J. Frank Norris, F.B. Meyer, Oswald Chambers, and, uh, and, and the list really could go on and on and on. These pastor teachers began to pin things down and put out books into the Christian community to help people begin to understand their Bibles and study their Bibles for themselves. And uh, probably uh, uh, you, some of you have some of their commentary sitting on your shelves here today. Uh, Warren Wearsby would be another one of them, uh, although he was a little bit later. Uh, but these, these individuals greatly impacted the church and uh, helped people become more grounded in the Scripture through their ministries uh, during this time period of history. There were also some notable missionaries who uh, kept alive the uh, heartbeat in the church for missions during the early part of this Laodicean time period. Uh, one that I love to study, and if you've never studied her life, it's, fa it's a fascinating study, is, is Amy Carmichael. Have you heard of Amy Carmichael before? Uh, she, uh, her, her, there's a biography written uh, about her, and I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it, but um, talking about her efforts and all that she went through to start the orphanage in India. Just a fascinating story of someone who got a burden for the Lord. And, you know, Mike Self, who we just voted on as our missionary, he's going to India. And there was ministry in this early part of, of, of the 19th century uh, uh, being started there by people like Amy Carmichael. Another great missionary during this time period was Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. How many of you heard of them before? Yeah, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They went to the Alka Indians. And uh, actually, Jim uh, was killed by those Indians. Uh, trying to reach them with the gospel. Later, his wife went back to those people that killed her husband and reached them with the gospel. It's an amazing story. We don't have time to tell it all tonight. I hope you'll write it down and read some of these biographies because they are just wonderful, wonderful stories of the, uh, of the grace of God and it gives you a, uh, gives you a, a desire to be involved in, in kingdom work and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of these good things were happening and the hot fire of revival was still burning as the lukewarm uh, church period, the Laodicean church period, began to come on the scene. But know this, as this period of church 
history began to progress, it was met with opposition. Up to this point in history, most of the mainline denominations, as we would call them, were agreed in their orthodox. They were agreed on what they basically understood to be true, the Bible taught. That's why during these great revivals that we talk about took place, people from all different walks of life and all different denominations, per se, excepting the Catholic Church that was not even accepted as a denomination then, certainly certainly shouldn't be now. Um, but accepting that, you know, Protestants, Baptists, there were a lot of different groups who were coming together during these great revivals that were taking place because they were all centrally agreed on some fundamental truths from the Scripture. But as the 19th century began to dawn, or the 20th century began to dawn on the scene, um, that began to be impacted in a very real way. The late 1800s saw the rise of theological liberalism in this world, and it began among um, a group of people we often refer to as the German rationalists. And uh, um, people like, uh, 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 these were people like, uh, uh, how do you say his name, uh, Fred, Frederick uh, Nietzsche, uh, how do you say his name? Somebody help me out. Nietzsche, is that how you say it? Uh, he's the guy that proposed God's dead, okay? And he's supposed to be a theologian, and he says God's dead. <laughs> um, and people listen to him, and they begin to inf- influence the uh, religious realm of the world, and that it was called theological liberalism. And, and this liberalism, it started in the East, it started in places like Germany, it spread in Europe, and then it eventually spread west to the United States as well, and uh, through that to the rest of the world. And because of the theological re- liberalism that was on the rise, there was a group of orthodox people, not just Baptists, but people from all different denominations who, who, who knew that what was being promoted by theological liberalism, was wrong, and they wanted to stand for the truth. And they wrote a, uh, a, a group of documents that they called the fundamentals. And as a result, their opposition, it's funny, most of the good names that we've received have come as negative names, right? They called us Baptists because they didn't like the fact we were rebaptizing people after they really got saved, and so on and so forth. And it was true about the fundamentalists as well. Well, they're the fundamentalists. And the theological liberals looked at the fundamentalists and said, you guys are not keeping up with the times. Um, you're holding on to old ideas. What were the old ideas? Well, the fundamentals were things like believing in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, believing in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ, believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, the theological liberal said, oh, no, the Bible's got all kinds of errors in it. It's just a good book of religious ideas written by religious people to guide us in our ideas about religion and all that nonsense. And so the, the fundamentalist said, no, we're going to take a stand for what is true. And that's where fundamentalism was born in the mid-1800s. This began to take place. And honestly, in the 1800s, the fundamentalists won the battle of the day. As far as who maintained the, the biggest influence on society, the, the uh, denominations that remained fundamental had the dominance in, in the society, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, world of that day and time. But in the early 1900s, fundamentalism came under attack. And the guy who uh, kind of spearheaded this attack was a guy named uh, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. I believe we have a picture of him. There he is, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, he was a pastor of a church uh, called Riverside Church in New Jersey, And he rebuked the fundamentalists, and he called them proponents of a slaughterhouse religion. 
You preach about the blood, and you preach about things that aren't necessary to preach about. That was literally what he began to promote at that point in time, and he began a movement that we now call modernism, replacing the old ideas about religion with modern ideas about religion. That was his whole idea. And Fosdick coined a phrase, I'm sure you've heard of this before, he called it the social gospel. Have you ever heard of the social gospel before? Social gospel teaches the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Well, we're all the children of God. No, we're not. (laughs) You can become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be adopted into his family. We're not all the children of God. We're all the creation of God. We're not all the children of God. I've got to get off of that. But that's what he taught. The social gospel, and he literally taught through the social gospel that the way to change the world is through social reform and through politics. Now, where have we seen the social gospel in our current context today? The church has all of a sudden become all about racial equality and all about trying to redeem our communities from all the wrong things that are happening. Listen, the only way we can save this world from the evil that's in it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings the change. We don't bring the change through our policies and politics. That's the social gospel that began with modernism with Harry Emerson Fosdick when he introduced this modernism and the social gospel that came along with it. And the thing about it was, modernism rejected the fundamental truths of the Scripture. We don't need the fundamentals. We've got a new way to change the world, a new way to reach the world. And so they began to question the legitimacy of things like creation. Well, creation didn't really happen. There's not a seven-day creation. They began to question the flood. They began to question some of these things like the account of Jonah and the Scriptures, the, the validity of them. And so it gave rise to a group of individuals who stood up on the scene after the fundamentalist. And these were a group of individuals that, were, uh, that we look back on and call them the apologists. Now, how many of you heard of the apologists before? Now, the apologists were people who began, uh, uh, the apologia is a, a Greek word that talks about defending the faith. It talks about the defense of the faith. And there were people like C.S. Lewis. Uh, there there, 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 there uh, were people like, um, uh, let me read you some of these names. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, J. J. Gresham Macon, uh, there were many other uh, apologists who stepped up on the scene who started to defend the validity of what the Scripture teaches. They fought ideas like evolution. They fought ideas like um, uh, uh, denying the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. They fought ideas like uh, uh, denying the reality of a seven-day creation. They began to defend the faith. They began to stand up for the Scriptures. And at the beginning had much success in doing so and and, and holding back uh, uh, this modernism from infiltrating the mainstream of society of their times. But then in the 1940s, Satan launched a new attack against the church. And this time was something called neo-orthodoxy. New orthodoxy is literally what that means. And it began with a Swiss guy, a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. And I think we have a picture of this guy as well. Um, There he is. All right, this Swiss gentleman began to introduce the idea of neo-orthodoxy. Karl Barth rejected modernism. He didn't agree with Henry, Henry Emerson Fosdick. He said, we need orthodoxy, but what we need is a new orthodoxy. 
All right? We need to change the fundamentals. We still need to have fundamentals. We just need to change what they are. That was the whole idea that Karl Barth came up with. And so he founded a new system of belief that took biblical phrases and gave them liberal meanings. So they would take the Bible and they would read what the Bible says. But they wouldn't tell you what the Bible says literally. They would give you analogy. They would spiritualize what the Bible says. This is the whole idea behind this new orthodoxy. And so they'd take ideas like the blood of Christ and they'd completely twist and divert what they mean. And I don't even have time to fully develop uh, all of this here tonight, but it's interesting. Uh, one of the apologists who stood against them during that time was Charles Ryrie. And in one of the books he wrote, he exposed this neo-orthodoxy. And he, what he said about it was this. He said, it's unbelief dressed in the garb of belief. They try, to look, they try to make it look like it's belief. But if you're denying Jesus Christ as the Son of God and you're denying the blood of Jesus Christ, you're not a true believer. And there were people who began to take a stand against these things. But sadly, there were many uh, who, who, who stood against this movement, and yet it still began to infiltrate many of the mainline denominations and institutions of learning during that time period. And this neo-orthodoxy, modernism, did begin to seep into institutions of learning, so much so that uh, Harvard, uh, the college, Harvard, founded in 16, uh, I think 1630. 1636, something like that. It's supposed to be a, 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 a college for preacher boys, a Bible college is what it started out as being. Sadly, this modernism and neo-orthodoxy has so infiltrated our society today that I just heard this past week that Harvard has literally appointed an atheist to be their chaplain. It's so horrible, it's almost comical. They're trying to be so relevant and so modern and give, so, give a new orthodoxy, a new, set, a new way to believe things, and look at what level it has taken places like this to. If you stand for nothing, then you'll fall for anything. You understand that, right? And that's what we have began to see in this Laodicean time period of history. But really, this wasn't even the worst part of the cancer that infiltrated Christianity and the church during this Laodicean time period, because what I'm about to tell you next has been much worse. Most of these movements I've talked to you about, they were staged off in the early days by true believers. I mean, if you're denying the inerrancy of Scripture, you're denying the virgin birth of Christ, the um, uh, uh, vicarious um, suffering of Jesus for our sin, you're denying some of those things. If you're a real believer, that's pretty obvious. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. And so, in a large way, Christianity, the church, didn't fall early on for a lot of these things. But what came next on the scene, they took hook, line, and sinker. And I want you to see what I'm talking about here. Satan launched a movement that began within Orthodox religion, that began within fundamentalism, to begin to lead the church toward compromise. And this movement... Now hear me out on this. It was called New Evangelicalism. Evangelicalism, in case you don't know what it is, evangelicalism is a term that's used to describe Christians from different denominations who hold strongly to the gospel. So a lot of times I'll say things like, we may not agree on everything, but, you know, Pastor Dan Calso, right down the street here, we, we both believe the gospel. and We believe in the fundamentals of the scripture, and he's my friend. 
And I can say that about several pastors in this area. We may, we may not believe everything the same way, see everything eye, eye to eye uh, when it comes to these things, but I would say we're, we're, we're evangelical. We do believe the fundamentals of the Scripture, and that is what evangelicalism was in its, in its early days. But it was in the really late 1940s, early 1950s, 1950s that the uh, new evangelicalism began to take place. And here's how it started. Some people within the fundamental ranks, they didn't like the separatist positions that some of their brothers in Christ were taking against the liberals, against the modernists. And they knew that what they were teaching was true, but they didn't like how much some of their contemporaries were getting up in pulpits and, and, and writing public documents that would call out these other people and saying they're heretics and they're wrong. They didn't like that, that uh, standing for the truth. They thought a better way to be able to impact the world would be to try to become buddy-buddy with these guys and win them to Christ and then impact people. And it was a good idea, I think, in its heartbeat. I really do think it was a good idea in its heartbeat, but it didn't work out well for them. Pastor Harry Okenga was really the spearhead of, of uh, this new evangelicalism. And uh, he led a group of disgruntled fundamentalists to propose the idea of starting something called new evangelicalism. Let me just give you a couple things about this. New evangelicalism deferred from fundamentalism in this rejection of separatism. They didn't want to separate from people. And its determination to engage itself in the dialogue of the day. In other words, the new evangelicals wanted to be able to be on the television programs. The new, the new evangelicals wanted to be looked at as equals to the theological liberals and modernists of their day. They weren't being given those opportunities and no platforms so long as they were standing against the error that those people were beginning to teach. And so they decided to change their strategy. And uh, Okenga stated about this movement, and, this, and I quote, the new evangelicalism has changed its strategy from one of separation to one of infiltration. Instead of separating from the, from the things that aren't true, we're going to try to get into these institutions. We're going to try to get into these movements. We're going to try to get into these camps and try to change them for good. Well, you know like I do, it's a lot easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. And they experienced that in this attempt at new evangelicalism. Later, Okenga insisted, and I quote again, he said, there should be a reexamination of the antiquity of man, the universality of the flood in God's method of, cre uh, of creation. Now, as new, ev new evangelicalism took root, the new evangelicals literally started to say, we need to question whether, whether creation really happened in seven days, whether if the flood maybe just covered a little part of the world, not the whole world. Why? Because they were trying to make themselves relevant so that the liberals and modernists would start listening to them and let them becoming a part of their organizations. They're trying to infiltrate instead of separate, and what happened is they had to compromise to do it. You see, are you seeing what I'm saying here? That's what began to happen in New Evangelicalism. And this, this of course, led New Evangelicals to advocate, advocate things like theistic evolution. They began to advocate early on things like questioning, questioning biblical inerrancy and many other compromises they, they made. Now, in 1957, this movement had already taken, ta taken off. 
And uh, Harry Okenga got up in a public address to this uh, new group of new evangelicals and made a public declaration, and this was a significant shift that happened in new evangelicalism. That's why I'm bringing this out. And this is what he said. He, he was declaring someone was going to become the new face of new evangelicalism. Billy Graham is the spokesman of the convictions and ideas of new evangelicalism. Now, I know a lot of you like Billy Graham, but I want you to listen to me. And you can study this out for yourself because I have, and I know what I believe about this. Billy Graham, I believe, was a saved man. I believe was a good man. My father went to the Billy Graham Museum. Uh, I can't remember where it's at. And he said that from the time he entered into the museum to the time he left, he heard the gospel from someone personally no less than 10 times. I believe that Billy Graham had a heart of gold. But the way that he has impacted the current culture of Christianity today um, is not good. And I want, I want to labor to show you why in the few minutes we have left here. In Graham's early ministry, he was a fundamentalist. And his ministry started uh, in coalition with things like Youth for Christ, which I know many of you, some of you will probably even reach through, um, and uh, had a heart to really win people to the Lord. And I think that that heart defined his whole ministry. Don't get me wrong um, with, with the things I'm going to talk to you about here but as his influence began to grow, he was a very gifted preacher, and many people wanted to come and hear him preach. Um, he's called the president's preacher or the president's pastor by some. Um, been invited to the White House by many of our presidents. Because his influence began to grow, in 1957, when the New Evangelicals called him their spokesperson, he introduced a new policy that he called his inclusive policy. You can study this out for yourself. But this inclusive policy was a decision, really, that embodied the whole idea of new evangelicalism. It was a decision to infiltrate instead of isolate. And so this is what he began to do. When he would have campaigns, he would invite people from every religion to help him put on the campaign. What happened immediately after he introduced this campaign was that when he had a Los Angeles a campaign to preach the gospel in Los Angeles, the chairman that he appointed for that campaign was a Catholic priest. Now, you understand like I do from studying church history why that should never have happened. Listen, if, I, if, we, if, if we decided we need to hire an assistant pastor and I go down the street and hire a Catholic priest, you guys going to be okay with that? No, because two things that aren't the same, two, two things that are different can't be the same. We, preach, we don't even preach the same message. They don't even preach the gospel. If you're truly following um, what the Catholic Church teaches. And so he began to include people from different religions inside of his campaigns. And you say, well, he only preached the real gospel message. And you're right. Here's what happens. Catholics come to Billy Graham's crusade, and they see their priest on the platform, and they say, oh, what Billy Graham's saying is what we believe. So I guess I'm saved. It leads to confusion, not to the truth. And that was the danger of new evangelicalism. In trying to infiltrate things that weren't true, they didn't take a stand for the truth and confused the church at large. That's what began to happen in this time period. And, you know, there's so much I could say about this. Things that are different aren't the same. 
And uh, that's, a, that's a principle that we should hold to. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 7 and 8, if the, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, how are the people going to be called to battle? If we give an uncertain sound about what the truth is, then how are people going to know what the truth is? The church is called to be the institution that preserves the truth. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, we're to be the pillar and ground of the truth. If anybody should stand for the truth, it should be the church. The church is called to separate from the world. Now, separation isn't just about what clothes you wear or what music you listen to. That's what we want to make it about. That's really not even the most important aspect of separation. We're supposed to separate from the philosophy of the world and the religion of the world. We're supposed to be the people that say, that's not the truth, this is the truth, thus saith the Lord. The Bible still says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, come out from among them, the world, and be separate, says the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, say the Lord. God still calls us to separation as the church. And it's a problem when the church is unwilling to do it. We disobey the scripture by not separating from error. And we advocate a Jesuit philosophy, the ends justify the means. Well, as long as I'm trying to win people to the Lord, it doesn't matter to what extent I go. And so I'm going to go headlong into um, these institutions and these things like we began to see some of these new evangelicals do. And you say the reason is to reach people with the gospel, but in the process you lose the gospel itself. And that's what began to happen here. And here's the sad reality of what took place next in history. The lukewarm church, by and large, has had no influence on the social revolution that we have witnessed taking place in the last 60 years. 1962, in the midst, Billy Graham began to preach in 1957. 1962, prayer was taken out of public schools. 1963, public Bible reading taking out of public schools. Progressive education began to have more impact on the school system than what the church was. And this was in an age when Sunday schools were still strong, but the church was in, when embracing new evangelicalism, and it killed it from the inside out. Progressive education led to a spirit of rebellion, which became very evident in the hippie age, right? I didn't live through that. Some of you are still hippies, but anyways. <laughs> but listen, it's pretty bad today. You thought it was bad then? The rebellion, the hatred towards authority that we see taking place in our time is despicable. And I could go on and on about that. But Satan's no fool. For the past 50 plus years, he's been after our kids. And it's showing those kids have grown up, and now they're influencing society. We're going to hell in a handbasket with some of the things we see happening in our day and time. And this infiltration philosophy of new evangelicalism has led the church at large to embrace today what we could call a seeker-sensitive philosophy. How many of you heard of that before, seeker-sensitive? Remember what Laodicea means? The people's rights. It's all about what the people want. Now we have churches that before they get started in communities, there are literally churches so-called that will send out surveys to people in the community and find out what kind of church they want to have. 
to help them understand what kind of church they're going to build. Why don't we go to the Bible and let the Bible tell us how to build the church? But people want what they want. I have people that come to our church and say, you know what, it's just not kind of, it's not, it's not my genre of music. You know, it's just not my style. And uh, I've, had, I've said this many times, but I've had people tell me, um, you know, I didn't, really, I didn't really enjoy the worship today. And I like to tell them, good, it wasn't for you anyways. <laughs> as long as God's glorified through it, what, what does it matter if you like it or not? It's the truth of God's word that's being declared in song, friend. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do things well. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's wrong to try to do things well. I'm not saying any of that. But if our motivation for doing things well is to get a crowd or to please people, it's wrong. This is not our church. It's not my church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not your church. It's not the people's church. It's the Lord's church. And that's an important thing that we need to understand lest we become Laodicean in our heartbeat and emphasis and while the church has slumbered, it's had no answers for many of the things that have risen in our society, things like humanism. Humanism, I believe, is really the biggest religion in the world right now. You know what humanism is? It's essentially the worship of man. It's man worshiping himself. And humanism teaches there's no need for God. Humanism teaches that man can reshape the world and take care of society for himself. Man knows best how to take care of man. Humanism is the beginning uh, and early ideology behind things like socialism, communism, and by the way, a one-world order that's one day going to take over this world. And it is infiltrating our society in a large scale. Meanwhile, we sleep as the church. And society's looking for someone to help, and God has given us the means to be able to do so. And we're too caught up in trying to fit into the world, and we've become distracted from reaching the world. We don't need to, we don't need to infiltrate, we need to evangelize. That's what God has called us to do. And may we never become a Laodicean church the church having embraced the ideology of the world in order to reach the world in this new evangelicalism, sadly now it's lost its fervency and its identity and grown apathetic. And in conclusion here, I want us to just read the recommendations Jesus gave to this Laodicean church. Verse 13, or verse 18 of, of uh, Revelation chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says here, in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. The Laodiceans thought they were rich. They were a wealthy city. You think you're rich? You're really poor, Jesus told them. You need to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Uh, it's talking about uh, uh, true riches, not the riches of this world, but true spiritual riches. That's what he's talking about there. Then he goes on and says that thou mayest be truly rich, and then buy of me white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. The Laodiceans were well known for their black wool market, a picture of sin on their clothing. And God says, I counsel you to, to buy of me white raiment. Not that black stuff that you think that you're well clothed with. White raiment, so you can be pure. It's talking about the righteousness of the saints here. Going on... 
and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. They needed to anoint their eyes so that they could truly see. Blindness in the scripture represents a lack of understanding and knowledge of biblical truth. Literally what God is telling the church today is, you need to study your Bible. You need to stop being so blind and walking in and accepting whatever's taught to you every week as being the gospel truth. You need to get in your Bible for yourself. You need to study for yourself to show uh, these things approved unto God. And much of the reason for the compromise that's taking place in our day and time is because people just want to come into church and, and hear a feel-good message that makes them feel better about themselves so that they can go about their, go about their continuing to live a worldly life. Come on now. That's what's going on today. And that is exactly what we don't need. And Jesus tells the church, you need to anoint your eyes. You need to open your eyes. You are spiritually blind. Anoint your eyes with eye salve. And then he comes in, and the last thing he says in verse 20, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him, and he with me. Church, we need to give Jesus back the control. We don't rule the day. Well, I don't, like what that, I don't like that kind of preaching. Well, if it's not biblical preaching, then don't like it. But if it is biblical preaching, get over it. We need the biblical preaching. We need the truth. And I know we understand that as a church, but friends, we need to give Jesus back control of this church. It should never be said Jesus is outside the doors. And I love this. This is the last thing I want to bring out here. Jesus talks about the church having fellowship with him, coming in and supping with him. That word used for sup is, 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 a, is a Greek word that in, the Greek, in that in the culture of that day, it literally referred to the last meal of the day, all right, your last meal of the day. And the emphasis of what is being taught there, we are in the end times. Jesus is, is inviting us for fellowship at the last meal. There's no church that was written to after this. There's no church age that follows this one. We are living in the end times today. Jesus is coming soon, and he wants his church to have fellowship with him. He wants his church to be passionate about the mission that he has given to us. And now is the time for us to be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and winning souls to Jesus Christ because there's coming a day when there will be no more time for us to work, no more time for us to accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ has given us to accomplish. And so, Lord, help us not to fall prey to this compromise, not to fall prey to going down this road of being like the world to reach the world. Let's stand for the truth with compassion and love and like our forefathers and throughout every age of history continue to declare the gospel and see souls come to faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus has called us to do. Now, I don't know where you're at on these things, but I do think that one decision that we should come to as a church together tonight is that we want to be like the Philadelphia church, a church on fire for the Lord and passionate about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and sending people to declare the gospel in the regions beyond. And may God help us to be that kind of church. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes together. Our heads are bowed, our